This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Okay, so we're starting a series called Devoted uh, and uh, not Holding Nothing Back. Um, the, the, the word devoted comes out of a, a passage uh, which we'll jump to in a moment, but, but we're all devoted to stuff. We're all devoted to stuff. Uh, it starts off, you're devoted to your, to your mother's milk, um, you know, that, that, that you scream for it, you, you, you're, desperate for, you're desperate for that. Um, and then it, it's Thomas, I think, uh, Jonah, is it Thomas or what is it, Victor or someone? Thomas, you're devoted to Thomas the Tank Engine or whatever your latest toy is. I, I'm really out. I mean, Thomas has lasted through the ages, hasn't he? That's why I can relate to him, but whatever. You're devoted to that, and then you're devoted to your exam success or your appearance. Uh, you're devoted to your career. You know, I really need to get this next step of the ladder. I, I'm, I'm giving my time and energy to that. Maybe you're devoted to your leisure time. Obviously, God First is seriously devoted to its leisure time this weekend, so let's bless them in that. Uh, you might be married. You should, you know, there should be devotion to your wife, husband. There's, there should be a sense of uh, devotion to family. As you have children, you just really get nothing that you do for them, that you wouldn't do for them, sorry. And then as you get on, you get devoted to your house. I'm doing up your house. Or you get Tom Hunting to do an extension for you, and you're devoted to a larger house. Uh, and then you finally, you div- I'm at this stage, you get devoted to your golf swing or, or the lack of a golf swing or throwing your clubs down and swearing under your breath uh, with people from the church. In fact, it was funny, I was out with Andy uh, Wilson on, um, when we were out Friday and he said, um, how's your small group going in church? And I said, I don't want to talk about church. <laughs> he was like, oh, I thought it was going to be a nice golf with a pastor. No. Okay, you get, get to your golf swing or your garden. I hear Tom Hunting's... Uh, uh, Dad, uh, Paul Hunting, his, his lawn is now immaculate. And so immaculate that he won't even, let the, won't even let the kids play on it. And then finally, obviously, you get diverted to your failing health. Uh, I've just had my hip replaced and now my back is playing up. So we're all devoted to those things and that's okay. That, that, you know, having priorities about those things are okay. None of those things in themselves are bad. Well, maybe golf. But none of those things are, are in themselves are bad to be devoted to. Obviously, there's something missing on that list and we'll come... Uh, to him uh, later, but but we're also accidentally devoted to stuff. I found this uh, infographic in the Guardian. We're accidentally devoted. If you watch the average amount of TV, uh, and you live to seventy, most people living longer than seventy. If you watch the average amount of TV, you'll spend seven years and eight months watching TV. Coming up fast on the rails with the kind of twenty-somethings uh, or eighteen is the social media. Five years and four months on social media. I think my, my daughter's already had her five years and four months out of the 18 that she's already had. Eating and drinking this close to my heart, three years, five months, we're devoted to that. Here's one, grooming. I know it's not that type of grooming, I have to explain to Americans. It's not that kind of grooming. But looking in the mirror, you spend one year and ten months looking in the mirror. Obviously, 
on average, the guys spend one month in the whole of their life looking in the mirror, and the ladies spend five years, and it just balances out. But um, you're looking in the mirror, you're constantly, you're constantly aware of that. You, you spend only one year, three months socialising. Obviously, for me, it's a lot less, but for some of you, it's clearly a lot more. And shockingly, you spend six months of your life doing the laundry. So, you know, you, you, and, and we can become accidentally devoted to those things. You can be accidentally devoted. My football team were doing quite well. Uh, they did crash and burn in two Leeds United style, but they, I did, I, I was accidentally uh, committed, devoted to checking the, the social media feed of hashtag LUFC.com. And then, and then when it all went pear shaped, I thought, what a waste of my time. And my wife could have told me that. She said, are oh, you getting quite excited about this, aren't you? <laughs> and we waste our time. We, we, we put our devotions in the wrong place. You know, that, 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 you know, shockingly, if you put social media in front of your family, that is a little bit the wrong, it's the wrong way around. You know, if your, if your uh, mom, dad, her, uh, partner, uh, spouse, husband, wife is, is having to say to you, get off the phone and stalk, you know, you've got that the wrong way around. I mean, we try to ban phones at our table. I don't know if you've ever done that. We try to ban phones. But what happens is you get that conversation, and then you think, oh, we better Google that and see if it's true. So that's what I do. I think, is that really true? So conversation, and you Google it, and before you know it, boom, they're all on phones. Uh, we accidentally get devo- uh, uh, devoted stuff. And when you're young, you don't think that's a problem. You feel that your life will just go on and you've got lots and lots of time. The shocking thing is that you have an immeasur- you've got an immeasurable amount of time. What are you going to devote yourself to? What are you really going to devote yourself to? So this series is a four-week series and it's out of uh, Acts 2.42, a familiar passage. They're all, or they devoted themselves... Uh, we'll find out who they are in a moment. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's what I'm doing this week, to the fellowship or community, Soph's doing that next week, to the breaking of bread and to prayer and worship, okay, and prayer. So what's the context for this? The context for this is the sort of the life of the first, uh, first church. Jesus has been crucified, risen from the dead, uh, he's ascended. So Jesus has ascended on high to the right hand of, of glory. And what's happened, this is Pentecost, so it's Pentecost Sunday next week, if you follow in the diary. Uh, and the Spirit of God has come on 120. I was going to say that's kind of what we are on Sunday morning. But, you know, okay, slightly this. But imagine it's a church of our size, 120 uh, adults, um, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. This is the, the context. And then we'll jump in. It's a long, uh, a long reading, but just to get you there, we'll, we'll pull, pull back a little bit further. But let's just read. Uh, this is in Acts 2. Uh, Therefore, this is Peter speaking. He's got up after Pentecost. There's been uh, tongues of fire. There's been uh, lots of, uh, of sounds that they, they sound like they're drunk. They say, you guys are drunk. And he says, no, no, let me explain what's going on. Halfway through that little explanation, he gets this. It says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, he's not, he doesn't beat around the bush, does he? Who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, that would be us, for all whom the, the Lord God, our God will call. With many other wor- words he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised. 
And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we've got this church of about 120 people who Jesus has been inputting. They've been journeying with him. They've, they've kind of had, as it were, the three-year intensive discipleship program. And then you've got, suddenly, you get 3,000, about 3,000 added to their number that day. I don't know if you've... Um, there's mums with new babies. You know, when you have a new baby, it is kind of scary, isn't it? They, I've said this before, that they, they give you the baby and you put it in this... You put it in the chair and then you kind of don't know how to hold the chair thing and and you just, you know, you put it in the car, you don't know how to click it in the car and then you drive off from the hospital or wherever it is and then you get home and just put the baby in the, and then it's like, whoa, and you think, what do we do? The baby's about to tell you. It's going to tell you what it wants. It's going to tell you I need I need input at one end and output at the other end. You know I need serious input and serious output. Now imagine if you had six, how you'd feel. Imagine the the, the kind of sleepless nights, the run off your feet that you'd have if you had six. Now this church has three thousand new babies. Three thousand baby Christians suddenly drop into this church. Uh, you know, I mean, how would we cope if we had one or two new Christians? You know, who's going to teach them how to how it goes? Who's going to kind of, as it were, give them the milk? Who's going to kind of make sure they don't make a mess? Who's going to kind of do that? H- how is it going to work? And, and you know, the the, the 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 number of people that suddenly came into that church. I know if we had three thousand people join us, we, we wouldn't know what to do. But imagine the scale of the impact. I know you think, oh, that's just in the Bible. But imagine the scale and the impact of 120 people suddenly with 3,000 new Christians. It's interesting, I think Peter had been given a little idea about how this was going to work. Peter's the the guy who's speaking, he's probably the the leader of the group, and he's been given an idea because when he first met Jesus, Jesus said to him, he said, I fished all night and I caught nothing, and then Jesus said, put your net over the other side of the boat, put your net over the far side of the boat, and they pull in, I don't know how many fish they had, probably wasn't 3,000, but it was a lot of fish. And actually they try and pull these things in and Peter says the nets are breaking and the boat's sinking and they call for extra help and whatever. I think it's interesting, he's thinking, now if I don't put some things in place in, in this church, it's going to be like that, the church is going to sink. The structures are going to break, the church is going to sink. And it's interesting that, 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 that what we're going to look at over the four weeks is those things that he put in place to make sure that the, the church wasn't going to sink, the church was going to do the things that were really important, that was going to keep the, the main things the main thing. It's interesting, just as a sideline, that, that, that they met together in the temple courts. That was daily, so they all met in a big group. So 120 suddenly became 3,000. Imagine those. I don't know if they went through the sacrifices. Were they, did they realize that Jesus was a sacrifice for sin and they didn't need to do that? I don't know. But they started off by doing that and then they'd meet in each other's homes. So there was a kind of intensity of kind of small G1 communities, as it were, and then Sunday meetings. That same rhythm we're still doing now, that structure that they put in place, we're still doing now. 
but also they did uh, uh, certain practices. So I'm going to look at, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's interesting, when the, when the, the way that the church was birthed was uh, that the Holy Spirit came down. It just says in Acts 2, uh, verse 1 and 4, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they... That they is 120, it's about to become up 3,000, but they were all together in one place. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They didn't go out and organise a religion. We've had this on 321, lots of discussion about, you know, did, did the disciples decide to form a religion? No, what happened is God decided to get his message out and he kind of comes and, and, and fills this room with the Holy Spirit. He comes and he encounters them with the Holy Spirit. So the ones who were timid, the ones who didn't know what they thought, suddenly they're bold and God's clearly there. And so what happens is that they have this amazing experience of God. There's this amazing sense of God's Spirit upon them. Uh, but actually, what went together is not just that they had an amazing experience, but they also, uh, uh, they also uh, knew the Word. And Dr. Martin Lowe-Jones, who's a, a boring old Welshman, uh, passed away many years ago, but, um, but he says this in his book. He says this uh, in his book about Acts. He says, Christianity is an experience. Not just an intellectual point of view. It's not that you decide it's true or not. It's, an ex- it's, it's not just that. It's an experience. But it's not only an experience. When people become Christians, he says, they have undergone the profoundest change they can ever know. It is indeed a profound experience. Yet there are other emotional experiences. In other words, there's lots of experiences, lots of emotional experiences. There's mystical experiences that you can have. There's loads of kind of experiences that you can have. He says this, how can you tell which one is Christian and which one is not? There's lots of experiences, lots of experiences. He says there's only one answer, and that is the cause of that experience. What's the cause of your experience? So it's not about having spiritual experiences. It's about what's the cause of that experience. So we don't want to be a church that just has spiritual experiences. We do want spiritual experiences. We do want those experiences where we feel God is here. You know, where they all, as it were, the room's filled with God's power and everyone speaks in tongues. We do want those experiences. But we don't just want experiences for experiences' sake. And that's one of the dangers that churches can just drift into experiences for experiences' sake. One of the other dangers is that churches can just have no sense of experience. It's all just kind of a nice idea. It's all just an interesting philosophy. It's all just, let's just, let's just um, uh, talk about the Bible as if it's not. No, it's a sense of real experience, something that changes you, that's profound. But... Dr. Martin Lone Jones says, Christians experience change as a result of believing the truth about Jesus Christ. So it's not that this early church decided they didn't want to be a, a church where God's spirit was, but they did decide the first kind of con- the first concrete block they were going to put in place is no, we're going to be a church that teaches the Bible. We're going to be a church that follows the apostles' teaching. Let's just see how Peter does it in that first sermon. What he does is they all say, you're drunk. And he says, no, 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 you're not drunk. This is what the, the prophet Joel has uh, told us about. Prophet Joel is an Old Testament prophet. Almost right at the beginning, he's saying, uh, there's a, uh, you know, this is, that, this is part of your religion. This is not something we've made up. This is, this is something that's 
uh, come out of the Bible story, out of the big Bible story. And he talks about, uh, God, I, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit uh, upon all flesh. The sons and daughters will uh, prophesy and dream. And then towards the end of that, it says, and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. In other words, he's saying the end of the world, a new age is starting, and the moon will be turned, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. When did that happen? Think, question. When did that happen? Could happen. It could be the end of the world. What had they just seen? They'd seen Jesus' death. The, the, the sky would have been darkened. And the moon would have, in one sense, been a blood moon. You would have had this kind of sense of a... And they would have thought, whoa. There's a sense where there's suddenly he's saying that this is the fulfillment of the big story. This is the fulfillment of the big story. And they said, and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, they'd be saved. They'd have been a little bit... It's not like Peter's a hellfire preacher and saying, look, you're going to go to hell. But what he's saying is, the, 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 the story that you've been waiting for is now here and now fulfilled. And then he goes straight to it. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did amongst you through him, as you yourself know. He's making it really clear. This wasn't some, the miracles and the life of Jesus wasn't something done in a corner. It was something that they'd all seen and experienced. They'd seen those kind of things going on. It's funny, we had at 321, people keep saying, our evangelism course, people keep saying, well, if God came and revealed himself to me, then I'd believe in him. But actually, that's not true, is it? The evidence is, if God reveals himself to you, you might believe in him, you might not. These guys, clearly God had revealed himself to them, and they didn't believe. At first, they didn't believe. So it wasn't that God revealed them and did amazing miracles. Actually, what made them believe is Peter saying, it's you, you've done this. You're involved. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, brackets the Romans, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, free him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He goes straight to it and says, what do, what do we need to know, guys? We need to preach Jesus. Nailed to, the de- nailed to the cross, raised from the dead. And he goes straight on, he says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus who you crucified both Lord and Messiah. He's saying, Jesus is God. And he's also the promised chosen one. Wake up. You've killed him. You've done it. And he adds on more layers to just to show that it's out there story. He says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you, there's a little bit where he says, uh, quotes from David, and it says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confident that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him that one that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what to come, was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. He's saying, the message that makes you set up is not that Jesus has died, but actually Jesus rose from the dead. This Jesus you crucified has proved that he's God, he's risen from the dead. Seeing what's to come, uh, David spoke of the uh, resurrection. God exalted, raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. It's eyewitness stuff. History. Exalted to the right hand of God, he received the promised Holy Spirit, which you now see now. He tells him, Jesus is God. He's done miracles, lived an amazing life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended on high, poured out the Spirit. 
He didn't do anything else. He didn't tell them anything else. He said, yeah, okay, this is the one that David promised, and this is the moment that Job talked about. So they go, carrying on. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until it make your enemies a footstool. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's almost like the first true sermon creates the first true converse. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ and uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul said about when, what he was going to preach in church, what was the things that he was going to talk about in church. He said, Nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was the first example of the first sermon. That's the apostles' teaching. That's the first example of the first sermon. If you're a visitor or you go to another church down the road or whatever, you need to ask the question, do they preach about Jesus? Or do they preach about some other stuff? Oh yeah, they might tip their hat about Jesus, but do they preach this message, Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Risen from the dead, ascended on high, pouring out His Spirit. That was the first gospel message. The first, how do you respond to that? What, what they said is, okay, that you've got to believe, you've got to repent, you've got to be baptised, and then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. That is what it is to become a Christian. It's nothing mystical. You've got to believe that Jesus is who he is. You've got to repent. That means you've got to turn from your sins. You've got to be baptised. And when we've got a baptism coming up, baptism means you say, I'm now I've believed I'm going to be baptised. Excuse me. Oh, we're good. We're there. So it's not the, the sense of, oh, I'm a little kiddie. And my mommy and daddy believe, and they're going to get me sprinkled. No, no, that's, I'm, that's not the Bible method. There's some reasons behind that that people draw from the Bible, but that's not the Bible method. The Bible method is you, rep- you believe about Jesus, you say, oh, I believe this, I'm turning from my sins, I'm turning from my way, I'm going to be baptised in water. If you haven't been baptised in water, what are you waiting for? But it's not the end of the story. You don't get baptised when you've re- reached sinless perfection, otherwise we none of us get baptised. You get baptised when you believe. So I believe this. Am I perfect? No. But I believe this. It's not like a fancy do that it's just going to want to have my mum and dad in the room and have nice cakes and not make that. No, get baptised. If you've come from a different tradition, you might have delayed it. That's fine. We still love you. We're not giving, judging you, but get baptised. And it says, and then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, those things all go on together. The Holy Spirit's working, repentance is working, believing's working. The only thing that you can really say, well, we know when get baptised is then. Be baptised. So that's the first thing, that the first sermon, the apostles' teaching creates transformation, and that transformation changes lives. Second thing, I just want to make two other points, and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump on down. The thing is, it's all about Jesus. What is the apostles' teaching? It's all about Jesus. There's that great story when Jesus, the risen Jesus, uh, he's walking along the road, and they're all saying, oh, it's, oh, isn't it terrible? Jesus has been crucified. We don't know what's going on. You know, it's all miserable. And he says, let me just tell you. Let's just let, get the Bible and they only, had, they only had this bit, up to here. They only had that bit, because that bit hadn't been written yet. And he says, let me just tell you out of here. Let me just tell you out of this bit, all about me. It's all about me. Starting with Moses, that's the first book, Genesis, right through. It says it's all about me. The Bible is all about Jesus. Tim Keller, we love to quote here, says, we never get beyond the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, in our Christian life to something more advanced. 
The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it's more like the hub in the wheel of truth. When I was, a, when I was a, in church as a kid, what we'd do is we'd, we'd have this idea that the gospel was this little bit of three things that you'd say to people to become Christians. And then after that, in the morning, they'd have like a meeting for like the Christians. So in the evening, they had like a, a gospel meeting that said, you know, Jesus died, rose again, whatever, and we talk about that, and you need to become a Christian. And then in the morning, it'd be all like general Bible. As if, well, you know, once you become a Christian, then you don't really need that stuff. You just have the general Bible stuff. And, and, and Tim Keller's saying, no, 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 this is not a step in a stairway of truth. Rather, it's a hub in the wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABC, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine to necessarily become a Christian. But the way we make progress, we all make progress as a Christian. We're not made right with God by the gospel and then made holy by our own hard work and obedience. The gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It's the solution to every problem, the key to every closed door, the power through every barrier. It's interesting, sometimes people will come to me and say, uh, you know, blah, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, so I've got some situation that's a, a difficult situation in my life. And I, and I will try and tell them, how the gospel applies to that. And, and sometimes you get this idea, like they say, why are you telling me this? You know, my problem's really serious. You know, I, I, need, I need something really, really helpful. Why are you telling me about Jesus has died and Jesus' life is my life? Why are you telling me about that? What I need is a counsellor. What I need is somebody else. What I need is some higher truth, some mystical experience. What I need is that. But actually, what, what, what they said is, no, no, what you need is this. What you need is Jesus to believe about Jesus. There's obviously, if there's some issue in your life, usually it's because you've, you've not believed some things about Jesus. If you've got some problems or battling with sin in your life, it's because you you've not believed some things about Jesus. And that's changed how you do it. So, so this, is the, this is the solution to every problem, the key to every closed door, the power through every barrier. So it's all about Jesus. Next one, little uh, side thought, because you could do a multiple series on this, don't worry, I will let you go. Uh, this, the next one, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and an age of moral relativism. Turn to the person next to you and explain moral relativism to each other. Comparing your morals to the general consensus around you, the general idea around you. The Bible says in, ju- in Judges, there was no king, so everyone did what's right in their own eyes. We have no king, we will not have God as our king. So what happens in our culture is everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And morality is relative. There's not a sense of this is right or this is wrong. There's a sense of I can do what I want and we'll make it up by opinion poll. If you're going to devote yourself to the Apostles' teaching, if you're going to devote yourself to this book, there are going to be things in this book that the culture outside doesn't believe, that the culture outside is not interested in. The culture outside will think you're a bigot if you believe them. The culture outside will think you're narrow-minded if you believe it. The culture outside will say, what are you doing? Now, you've got a choice at that point. You can devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, or you're just going to slip and slide with the culture. Now, that doesn't mean that you take harsh verses out of the middle of Leviticus and shout them at people at work. You've got to understand the context. We're going to talk about Jesus Christ You've got to understand the context of what, how things are written, which is poetry, which is literature, which is history. There's got to be a little bit of interpretation going on. But the truth is, you will find this book says, God created the heavens and the earth, and the world says no. You'll find this book that says, marriage is between a man and a woman forever, and the world says no. 
what you're going to do. Matthew Paris, he writes in the Times, he's always great at poking at us for our limp-wristed approach to truth. He says, I am, even as a gay atheist, he says, I wince to see the philosophical mess that Bible-believing Christians are making. Is there nobody of any intellectual stature left in the church to frame the argument against, listen to this, Christianity slide into just going with the flow of social and cultural change? It's so easy. The world out there doesn't like it, so we don't like that. We're just What you do is you think, well, flip, there's a really horrible passage on hell in the Bible, so we'll have that one. Whip that out there. And there's a couple of passages on homosexuality. Well, they better go. And then, you know, and that's, you, just, you, work, you work that through. And you think, well, just let the culture decide. He said, there was a time, even in my time, when there were quiet, understated churchmen who could show us moral relativists a decent fight in the debate. Can't these Christians see that their moral basis for their faith cannot be sought in the pollster's arithmetic? Everybody says this is fine? Fine. We'll fine. We'll say it's fine. That's what happens in the church. The pollsters say this is fine. 20 years later, the church says it's fine. Now, some of the things the pollsters have said is fine, the church has been wrong and been behind on. So it has oppressed women a bit, church. But actually, on a lot of things, why does the church slide? Why do we slide? If the majority of people do not agree with their church's century-old doctrine on questions of morality, any great religion must surely stand and declare the majority might be wrong. Just where we go, guys. If we're going to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. A couple more. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. Let, let's just jump then from that. I could have done a whole thing on that, but let's just, just bet, part that one about... But basically, we're basically coming into the situation where... Uh, you've got to start with uh, baby milk. If you're a Christian, a new Christian, you've got to start with baby milk. And actually, Paul uh, writes to some Christians and says, look, you've been Christians for years and you're still on baby milk. The way you get your Bible is still the kind of metaphorical breastfeeding. You know, or maybe you've moved to spoon feeding. It's interesting, isn't it? There is that progression, isn't there? There's breastfeeding and then they move to spoon feeding and and it's kind of like... Come on, open the tunnel, Thomas. And in they go, and then pop it in, yeah? And then hopefully they move from that to, I don't need my own food. <laughs> you know, and then eventually they move to, you, get to you, you aim to get to the point, you know, somewhere along the line, where, the, where actually you can maybe even cook your own food. You can go to the shop and cook it. You know, you, suddenly when you go off to university, it's like the, the kids, my kids are saying, you know, what do you do? And we'll teach you a few dinners. Yeah. And hopefully, eventually, you get to a point where you can say, I can cook a nice dinner, why don't you all come round? I mean, you're allowed to invite them just to any old thing. But you understand, you see, the, the, the spirit, there's progression in eating. And that's the same with Bible. You'd start off breastfeeding with Bible, you don't know anything, you've just got to suck up what you're told. But eventually, you've got to start to feed yourself. But you, to do that, you've got to want it. Dr. Martin Lord Jones said this, Whoa. wanting to drink... uh, The same uh, book I quote from, wanting to drink God's word is inevitable if men and women are truly born again and have become Christians. I always know when somebody's really become a Christian because they think, I want to read about this. You know, you get people who've just become Christians and they're reading 
Try not to look at anyone in particular. And they're reading stuff. And then you've got people who've been Christians for years and like, <laughs> it's in here somewhere, isn't it? I do, am I supposed to read this? Yeah, well, whatever. You know, that there's something they should, we should, he said we should be, have that inevitable desire. He says a newborn has an instinct for milk. It wants it. It cries for it. It makes a fuss. It makes for it. The baby's alive and wants mother's milk, and rightly so. It's to be exactly the same with a Christian. Why not simply be a Christian and have no desire for the life-changing knowledge of the truth of Jesus? It's impossible. If you are not interested in this on a general basis, and you're just letting me give you, come on, Thomas, open up. If that's how it is, you what's your faith like? So, practical stuff. Let's race through the practical stuff. First thing you've got to do, if you're going to devote yourself to apostles' teaching, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have a plan. You can't just, don't just go, oh, in my Bible, I'm feeling really low today. I need a job. Um, in your thoughts, you will ponder the former terror. Where is the chief officer? That's it. I'm going to become a fireman. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Have a plan. Think. Have a plan. So here's some things I've used over the years. Bible in the year is Nicky Gumbel, HTB. You can get it on your phone. You can get it on your laptop. You can, uh, you know, it's an electronic thing. You can, even, you can even buy a book with it. That's a little app, Bible in the year. You can just read it. And it's basically a little bit of Bible and a little bit of Nicky Gumbel. It's kind of like Heinz mashed up stuff. You know, he, or maybe it's kind of, a little microwave meal. Ding! You know, it's there for you. You can go to another one, uh, next book one, reading, uh, reading Between the Lines. That's a video. I'm using that at the moment. I've just thought I'm going to do something else. You probably think, well, you baby food boy. I, it's basically a seven-minute video. You watch him, and it's Glenn Sriven, remember, who preached here. You can get it on your phone, read between the lines, and he plays you a little video. A little truth from the Bible that he does. But why I like it and why I'm doing it at the moment is because he says it's all about Jesus. Every little phrase, you think, how does he get Jesus out of that? And it's not like he's playing games because it's all about Jesus. So that's a good one. Read between the lines. U version, again, is on your phone. There's so many reading plans on U version that if you did them from now till, till, the, till, till doomsday, to till the end of the world, you, you, you wouldn't run out. Just find one. The Bible in the year. I mean, it's a lot of hard work, the Bible in the year. Or you can do the New Testament in a year. You can, you know, have a plan. My, uh, my mum and my uh, father-in-law used to do that book. It's called My Utmost for His Highest, old school. But basically, it's a little bit of thoughts from a guy called Oswald Chambers, if you like paper. Or you can just say, I'm going to start at Matthew, and I'm going to read Matthew, and I'm going to read him. And then Mark and Luke. If you start in the middle of Leviticus, you're probably going to run out. But have a plan. I could ask you, hands up if you've got a plan. Have you got a plan? If you haven't got a plan, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit nothing. So then, five little quick things. So the first thing is read the Bible slowly. Read the Bible slowly. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked. Actually, elsewhere in the Bible it says, I've hidden the God's word in my heart, so I won't sin against you. If you're struggling with sin... You could say, I mustn't sin, I mustn't sin, I mustn't be attracted, I mustn't, I mustn't think, mustn't. or you could say, no, I'm going to read the Bible. I've hidden God's word in my heart, so what's sin against him? Uh, for Psalm 2, blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked, but 
but whose delight is in the law or the word of God, who meditates on his word day and night. That person like a tree planted by a stream of water that yields its fruit in season. You meditate by asking the Bible questions. You meditate by asking the Bible questions. So when you go, in the beginning was the word, first verses of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It would be quite an interesting thing to meditate on that and say, well, who, who are we talking about here? Who, who, who's this? You might say, oh, we know the answer to that. But meditate on it. Ask questions. Who, who, who's, who's writing this? Oh, it's a guy called John. Who's he writing it to? Well, it doesn't say at the beginning. Okay, starts with Mark's gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. Okay, so he makes it clear. Okay, and you can work through, and you can meditate on little bits and pieces. You just read a tiny bit, and you ask, who's writing? Who they're writing to? Who's involved? What's saying? What's it make to? Just read it simply. Ask, read, read the Bible slowly. Who, what, where, how, why? Easy. Read the Bible slowly. The opposite, then, is uh, read the Bible quickly. <laughs> I, I blame Andrew Wilson, uh, not our Andrew Wilson, but another Andrew Wilson for these quick headings. Read the Bible quickly. There's certain parts where you just think, oh, flip, this is hard work. So, you know, if you turn to Numbers chapter 7, it's a big long list of names. You don't just go through thinking, meditating on busy early, Baba Laba Laba, Charlie, David... Fred, mm, I wonder what the significance is. Is it alphabetical? Mm. Maybe there's a secret code here. No, just, re- just get the idea. God loves people. He likes people. He knows their name. Great. You jump on. Yeah? There's loads of bits in the Bible where it says, and then they got the carvings and they did the carvings and they covered the carvings with, they covered the carvings with gold and they made pomegranates and they put the pomegranates and they ate pomegranates and they put them up there and they fired them and they put the beams and they put the curtains with poles and five poles and five poles and don't forget, they put the curtains with poles and you think, whoa! They get the idea, they're making a temple. <laughs> I get the idea, thanks, I'm moving on. They're making a tabernacle, God's going to be with his people, great, move on. You know, laws about sacrifices, now don't take, take your mildew and, and just wash this out and make sure you wash out your socks and all that. And just, yeah, okay, I get the idea. You know, God's interested in how we live. Judgments of nations, read those quickly. And woe to you Babylon, woe to you this, woe to this. Yeah, I get the idea. And then it has a nice bit of blessing, and blessing to you Israel. Ooh, I'll read that. Read the Old Testament quickly to get the big story, unless Jesus seems to be in view. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men, like from one men hides their faces. Surely he has borne our sins. Oh, Jesus, it might be Jesus. I'll read this slow. Psalm 22. Yeah? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, and this might be Jesus. Okay, read it quickly. Read it together. I'm getting this down, we're nearly down. Read the Bible together. It's interesting, they never, the old, old school, they never had like, me and my Bible. You know, hundreds of years ago, before printing, before iPhones, whatever, they didn't have me and my Bible, and you'd sit in your little quiet room with you and your Bible. Me and my Bible, me and my God. God, speak to me. About me. Tell me about me. Me. I'd like something for me, please. Me. Can, I, can, you, can you do something for me? Great, good, okay, I'm good. You can read the Bible that way, and it's good to read the Bible on your own. But actually the Bible, generally, the, it was like there was one Bible in the whole town. You know, the Cheltenham Bible. I mean, I, I know that, that Stafford sold their town Bible for two dancing bears. Horror. Well, we don't need the Bible. We've got one Bible in the town, let's have two dancing bears. It's going to be much more fun, isn't it? Cheltenham sells its town Bible. We're going to have festivals. You know, there's one Bible in the whole town, and so they'd gather to read it together. 
They'd read it together. That's what we're supposed to do. It says every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They read it in the big, re- the, they'd read it all together. And they broke bread in their homes. I'm assuming that they read the Bible all together. That's what we do in our groups. It's not like we read the Bible for the sake of the Bible, but we read the Bible to stop you drifting off the nutty. If you get your phone out and type in, what does the Bible say about the end of the world? Click, click. And then you'll get a million nutcases. You know, but you get it from all over. You get like, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this, and whatever, and what about this, and what about this, and what, and, and you listen to all these things on, on God TV, and you're listening to all these YouTube things, ah! Yeah, and then you think, well, that's okay, I've got my idea. You go and you say to, you're in Steve Moat's group, you say, I've just been watching this thing about, about, um, the, the last days in Jesus is coming when Donald Trump becomes president. Should I store up baked beans and, uh, you know, wait for the rapture? And Steve's going to go, what have you been reading? Let, let, this is what we believe. And you'd also, yeah, do, do, do you know that how people go nutty? Because they just don't read it in community. Now, okay, I've thrown a whole load of stuff out there and people might think, hmm, but there might be a rapture. I'm just joking. But do you know what I'm saying? That you can get into all sorts of funny ideas. You know, I used to get, when I was at school, it was like, the EU is the ten-horned beast of Revelation. And if, you know, oh, you know, we watch out, because that means that the, you know, an Armageddon starting, just Jesus Christ, him crucified, can we stay there, please? Read it in community. Stops you moving off track, and it also helps you to apply it to your life so that you talk to people. I've just been reading this. So Steve's just been reading Timothy. Hopefully he's talking about Timothy and whatever he's been reading Timothy, and then you, he chats with Stan, and Stan says, oh, that's interesting. What are you doing about that? What are you doing about that love and sound doctrine? What are you doing about it, Steve? <laughs> Read it in community and apply it to your real life. Read it prayerfully. They devote themselves to apostles' teaching and prayer. Uh, uh, Matt Redmond's got the song called Breathing in Your Word and Breathing Out Your Truth. In other words, you breathe in God's word, whether it's preached on a Sunday about money, about social justice, about Jesus and, and how that all shapes. You can breathe in the word and then you breathe it out into prayer. God, thank you, you've spoken to me. Now change my heart on my money. Change my heart on my attitude to the nations. Change my heart on looking for things elsewhere in other gods when it should be you. You turn that into prayer. And then lastly, read the Bible as a Christian. That sounds a stupid thing to say, doesn't it? Actually, the first bit of the Bible, you can read that as a Jew. The Jews do read it. The Muslims have got the first bit. Read it as a Christian. It's all about Jesus. So don't read it and say, what does he say about me? What does he say about me? It's actually, it says... It's about him. You know, you, if you imagine a big wedding photo, you're just the little chap in the corner of the wedding photo. He's the bride in the middle of the photo. He's the groom in the middle of the photo. The photo's not about you. Oh, I can see myself here. No, no, the photo's about him. Read it, it's about him. Do you love that? Yeah. It's not about you, guys. It's about him. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.